Assalamu alaikum, this is Abdurrahman Murphy, and you're listening to the newest Heartwork series, Finding Meaning in Trial. In this series, we'll be exploring an upcoming publication that I'm working on, translating and commenting on the beautiful short text of Al-Izz bin Abdussalam called The Benefits of Trials. In this series, we'll be exploring some of the meanings and some of the benefits of trials in our lives as given to us by Al-Izz bin Abdussalam. He gives us some of the good things that we seek in life that can only come from the bad moments that we experience in life. I look forward to joining you on this series, inshallah, and having you with us. And as always, if you benefit from our work, please consider donating and becoming a sustainer at rootsdfw.org slash sustain. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah. Welcome, welcome. How are you? Alhamdulillah, very good. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Um, so tonight, inshallah, I wanted to... Um, we, we, we reached out to Sami a few weeks ago to invite him. Uh, for those of you who don't know uh, him, he, mashallah, has someone, is someone who for the past uh, few months now has been really front and center in a lot of the rhetoric and conversation and dialogue about uh, the geopolitics um, regarding, of course, the Muslim world and you know, at the nucleus of that, of course, what's happening in Gaza, but how that event or these events ripple across not only the Middle East and uh, the Muslim world, but just in general, the Ummah at large. And so you may have seen, you know, some of his work uh, either through like Yaqeen or even just some of his interviews and some of the stuff that he does uh, on his own, mashallah, may Allah ta'ala bless him. Um, and we thought that it'd be a good opportunity. You know, he's come to the States now. He's visited Dallas, Sharif. How have you found Dallas, mashallah? The thing is, when I was coming to Texas, and you have to understand, I've only been to, the first time I came to America was 2018, to New York, Washington, then North Carolina. And I was very excited when I saw the Confederate flags, because it looked like just like the movies. Yeah, we just need to clarify that. Yeah, so, so I looked and I thought, oh my God, it, it looks exactly like what it looks like in the movies. And everybody talks like they do in the movies, so you always expect the credits to come out. And then I went to LA to the West Coast, and I found the British summer. In the UK, in London, we have five days of summer a year. So I landed in November and I found 27 degrees Celsius and I found clear skies and the sun. And then these brothers who found out I was in LA, they said, Sammy, come visit us in Chicago. And I thought that, you know, London to Frankfurt is one hour, 15 minutes. London to uh, Paris, half, uh, like 45 minutes. London, Zagreb, two hours. London, Istanbul, three hours. So I said, yeah, no problem, Echey. I come to Chicago, no problem. They sent me a four hour ticket. And then when I landed in Chicago, and no disrespect to those who are from Chicago, you know, I, f I found... We call it, we, we call it the fourth <laughs> holiest city in the world. You, you, you couldn't even see Chicago from the sky because it was so cloudy. So when the brother said, Sammy, Salam mashallah, thank you for coming to Chicago. I told him, you brothers have no shame taking me from L.A. all the way to Chicago. Yeah. You're making me taste that. But in terms of Dallas, I expected to come here and see rednecks and yeehaw. And, and, you know, <laughs> and oh, we I can show you. <laughs> we can go to Fort Worth or Denton. <laughs> we can go to Denton. So, so, right. so you can imagine my disappointment when I landed and I found uh, Masri, Salam Alaikum, Wa Alaikum Salam. Then I found Somalian brother in the, you know, in the airport as well. And then I found Mediterranean Afrah restaurant. And then I found Arwa Yemeni Qahwa. And then I found, and I said, SubhanAllah, where am I? This is, this is, this is Dallas Sharif. This isn't Texas. Yeah. So Alhamdulillah, I, I'm very happy to see Muslims on the other side of the road. But I'm hoping, inshallah, to see the things as well, yee-haw, rodeo, stuff, inshallah, bi-idhnillah. Lazim, lazim. <laughs> we have to do ziyara, inshallah, Fort Worth, and make sure that you get taken out there, inshallah. Um, so, Brother Sammy, I wanted to, obviously, you have such a valuable uh, opportunity, and you're such a valuable resource to the Ummah, may Allah Ta'ala protect you and increase you, being able to shed some light on you know, what's going on, especially for those of us that have either been plugged in or are just now getting plugged into um, the Palestinian cause and how it affects how Palestine really functions as a nucleus or barometer for the Muslim ummah at large. Um, so we wanted to talk a little bit about that, but we also were reading this book called The Benefits of Trials by Le'ez bin Abdussalam, who very interestingly, his life parallels so much of the... Uh, 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 the framework of what we're seeing now. He lived in a time when Muslims were being, uh, you know, slaughtered, and he lived in a time when he had to make very, very controversial but principled decisions against Muslim leadership, and he was punished as a result of his stances. 
uh, and his fatawa that he that he published. But nevertheless, he remained very firm in his position. And subhanAllah, because of that, he experienced many trials. So he wrote this book. We're going to go through it a little bit. I wanted to maybe take some of your reflections on the chapter that we're going through, which is As-Sabr. Uh, but before we begin with that, I wanted to ask you one question about how many of us that have been watching from afar, that don't have access to diplomats and to insiders and understanding the inner workings of how these things play out. You know, we're seeing, for example, uh, videos and pictures of children, men, women, being displaced, bombed, losing their homes, losing their livelihood, losing their lives. And then we see, uh, you know, Muslim rulers, uh, leaders, uh, kind of giving sort of like responses that here in America we feel are very frustrating and upsetting. Um, what do you think is the number one trait that a Muslim who's living abroad can have in their heart that will help them be able to deal with the destruction, the devastation that we're seeing? What kind of trait, what maybe, uh, um, you know, spiritual trait can a Muslim have that will give them the ability to process through this trial that we're witnessing? I think that it's clear that everybody watching the TV screens about what's happening in Gaza, Palestine, you can feel your heart breaking. You can feel the despair. You can feel, I assume nearly everybody here has shed tears over the videos that they're seeing, such as when you saw the picture of the man holding his dead granddaughter and he says, you know, your ruh ruh your soul of my soul. And you see the way you see the children, you see the pictures under the rubble and... They are killed and they are being dug out the rubble and it's corpses everywhere and the like. And it's tough to watch those that have the power to do something choose not to do so. And I give you an example in that when Biden came to power and called the Saudi crown prince a pariah, Saudi crown prince began to exacerbate the price of gas by cutting production and squeezing Biden until Biden got on a plane and went to Jeddah less than a year later and pleaded with bin Salman, please, please help me with the gas prices. And bin Salman still went to punish him in the midterm elections until Biden began making the concessions that bin Salman wanted, suggesting if you insult the crown prince directly, he mobilizes and squeezes the Americans, which suggests the reason he's not doing now is because he quite simply does not want to. And the same when you look at some of the other states. So you can feel that frustration uh, take place. But there is a trait that the Palestinians have demonstrated that is something that we should adopt ourselves in terms of how we're approaching what's happening, and that is sabr, that is patience. And the reason why I say that is because you can see that the Palestinians, one of the things that has been so inspirational in watching their reaction to what's happening is that you've all seen the videos when somebody has their sibling die. They say, Hasbunallahu ni'mal wakil wa inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. And we see them say that we accept Allah's will and we accept his decree. And we accept that the people who have died, they are shuhada indallah. Farihina bima atahum Allahum in fadli. Happy with what Allah has given them. They say, hasbunah wa ni'mal wakil. Allah will punish the leaders. But for us, we, can, we are content with what Allah has given us. And that is the sabr that they are displaying. And the sabr that we should display as well. By that, what I mean is, yes, sabr through the heartbreak, sabr through the despair, but also sabr in, in the path to achieve the outcome that we're all striving to achieve, which is firstly a ceasefire, and secondly a recognition of the legitimate rights of the Palestinians. Sabr in this case being that in the beginning when we were shouting on social media, when we were going to the protest, when we're mobilizing, having sabr that it doesn't, the change doesn't come in a week, it doesn't come in two weeks, it hasn't come in two months, but very surely we're getting there. Remember in the beginning, Blinken, the Secretary of State, was saying to his State Department, nobody use the word ceasefire, nobody use the word pause, nobody talk about an end to the fighting. But there, were, there was that time when Trudeau, sorry to cut you off, no, no, but of that course, video yeah. where he's like, we need to have a cease. And, and he corrects himself. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. He says, he says, Allah, use the horrible <laughs> word. You know the, he says, you know. So the, it's clear that they were being 100%. instructed. Yeah. But the reason why I say sabr here is, is that those who don't have sabr gave up in the first week. Mm. Those who don't have sabr said there's no point. Those who don't have sabr said, what's the point? What's the use? We don't have armies. Let's wait for the Mahdi to come. Astaghfirullah 
But with those who had sabr were left and they stayed in the corner while everybody who had sabr kept going until Blinken went from not calling for a ceasefire to calling for a pause, then a humanitarian pause, then a truce for a hostage exchange, and now they're talking about the word ceasefire. Today I read that the UK Prime Minister is now calling for a ceasefire. They're calling it a sustainable ceasefire. But the ones who achieved that shift are the ones who had sabr on the path to achieve the mm. outcome that they seek. They kept that sabr, that key trait, in that through that heartbreak, through their tears, through that struggle, they kept going because they believe that in Allah sabirin, mm. that Allah is with the patient and that's what's led to this change so the direct answer to the question is is the sabr and I'm glad that it seems in everybody's eyes here the sabr is here as well Allah. so he says actually the eighth benefit of trial and remember we're talking specifically of course with Sami here about the, the, the political trial in Gaza that we're all in Palestine really that we're all witnessing and to some degree how it's rippling across the world with the different sort of laws right everyone's mask is falling off and so you're seeing whether it's in Europe or whether it's in America people losing jobs people being pushed out of positions people not being called back for offers uh, laws being passed that are limiting certain things unless you sign saying that you know I will not boycott Israel etc so really this is a test that's not just in one place, but it's the shock waves are sort of expanding beyond uh, the borders of Palestine, the capital of which is Jerusalem, by the way. So the eighth benefit that he says is الثامنة, الصبر عليها. And then he says, وَهُوَ مُوجِبٌ مُحَبَّةِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى وَكَثْرَةَ ثَوَابِهِ And then he quotes, he says, وَاللَّهُ يُحِبُّ الصَّابِرِينَ So interestingly, what he brings up when he talks about sabr, Al-Izb bin Abdul Salam, is he says that sabr in and of itself is worth it, not because of any change of the outcome, but he says that your sabr is actually worth it because by demonstrating sabr, you will have now entered into the arena of being loved by Allah. And that's, I think, what we're seeing. We're seeing people that have recognized that by, we, by the fact that I can remain in this state of connectedness to Allah, my patience is actually further catapulting me to Allah. And the nearness with Allah, the miracles that you're seeing, the grandfather holding his, his granddaughter, right, and talking about her. And then it seems like, subhanAllah, he's everywhere that's needed. You know, he's consoling a, a little girl who lost one of her legs, or he's in the hospital trying to treat a child. And it seems to be the case that this person is almost being carried by the divine now. Like they're no longer a human entity. Of course, we're all human. But rather, their aid is so clear so clearly being given to them by Allah. And the way that Al-Izb bin Abdul Salam explains that is he says, look, because sabr opens doors. And when you, ex when you explore sabr, when you show sabr, then now you've opened the door to the love that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you. And Sami, I wanted to, to bounce that off of you and that idea off of you. There has been a outpouring of and a complete shift in the rhetoric and the narrative about Palestinians about Muslims, right? I saw the other day a meme that showed uh, Joe Biden and others, and they were like, you know, Hollywood spent billions to convince you that a terrorist looked like this, and it showed that grandfather with his beautiful beard and smile, and then they said, and a terrorist does not look like this, and it showed Joe Biden and some other politicians. And I think the meme was trying to get at this idea that now the narrative has shifted, and that people are starting, and you're seeing all these like, basically TikTok du'at, it's crazy. All these people on TikTok reading Quran, all types of people. And if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. All types of people. They, everyone's welcome here at Roots, but all types of people. And, you know, and, and it's, it's beautiful. In some ways, you're seeing people, you know, engage with the Quran and they're basically following. Some of it, I will say, I have to say, it's a bit much, right? They're like, I think I'm going to pass some rulings. You're like, not yet, Habibi, right? Let's first work on the Salaamu Alaikum. Right? They say salamu alaikum like they're part of the CIA, right? They're like, assalamu alaikum. I'm like, okay, you're definitely wearing a wire. But, um, you know, we'll work on that, inshallah. By the way, we know you're here. So, uh, <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, in your time as an analyst, right, particularly with a disposition and a, a nuanced view of the Muslim community, and we talked about this, right, the 9-11 experience, with the Muslim community versus now the 10-7, or as we say, the 10-8 experience. 
what is the difference now that you're noticing with regards to the Muslim response worldwide? Is this something that is distinctly different? What is there that we're seeing now amongst the Muslim ummah that is, dare I say, positive amidst, amidst this horrible tragedy that we're losing sleep over? Well, you know, the first few weeks we kept saying the dumbest question you can ask a Muslim now is how are you? Because everybody has the same answer, which is like shaking their head. You have to say like, you know, I'm okay, I guess, right? Because I just woke up and saw 27 people lose their life in one bomb and another bomb killed 47 and so far and this and that. And I have to see people pulling their siblings out of rubble. So that was like a really, 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 and it still is. But then Allah Ta'ala gives you this, these moments, these silver linings. So what have you seen uh, uh, with regards to the silver linings? I think that one of the things, there's a simple answer and then there's the explanation why it's perhaps more complex than it is simple. I think that after 9-11, I think there was this sudden reaction to insulate ourselves from the impending doom that was coming across the horizon. And as a result, instead of pushing back against the narratives, we sort of tried to come up with every justification possible or ever to separate ourselves from what happened but in a way that sort of legitimized the illegitimate arguments that were being made against the Muslims that somehow they support vile atrocities or they support terrorism or like which was categorically not true I think that in this regard what's happening now is there is a clear pushback against the illegitimate narratives that first of all suggest that Israel has the right to self-defense given that it doesn't even under international law because as an occupying power, it's in an offensive posture and an occupying power cannot defend itself against the people it is occupying. It's legally impossible. That's something acknowledged in international law. But I think the simple question is this time, the Muslim community, instead of retreating inside itself, is roaring out loud. Instead of retreating inside itself, it's pushing back and it's standing up for the Palestinian cause and it's amplifying the voice of the Palestinians. And one of the reasons why that's become possible is not because this generation is necessarily different from the generation before. Every generation has its battles and we benefit from the battles that have been fought by the generations before us and we're grateful for the battles that they fought and they won that we don't have to battle today. I'm not one who undermines the generations, the efforts of the generations before us. But rather I think that the distinction here this time is in 2001, the information was centralized by the mainstream media. Your information mm. was received exclusively from CNN, from the BBC, from all these other different outlets and the like. Whereas today, thanks to the divine blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, through the wonderful creators of social media, Mark Zuckerberg, may Allah give him hidayah and admit Amen. him to Ayah's Jannah, and then Elon Musk, and then Jack Dorsey, and these guys. And I mean it sincerely because this social media, when, when, when TikTok came out, I was horrified because everybody said it's all dancing videos. I said, there's no way I'm getting on TikTok. So Zainab, my beloved sister, came to me and said to me, Sammy, look, it's the future. You need to be on TikTok. You I need told, to dance. You need. <laughs> so I said to her, there's no way I'm spending my night scrolling through random videos yeah. of people doing silly things. Yeah. She said to me, don't be foolish. This is the future. Anyway. I altered my algorithm. Now I see soccer videos everywhere, or football, vid yeah. football videos <laughs> and the like. But the point is that the social media meant that this time you didn't need an intermediary to deliver the information. You no longer needed BBC. You no longer needed CNN. You could see Mu'taz Azeza directly. He mm. would broadcast from Gaza and you see him directly. Plastia, you could see her directly. You could see Hind al-Khudari directly. You could see Muhammad al-Kurd directly. You could have, you had direct access to what was happening to the Palestinians. And the wonderful thing about capitalism is that there is this something called the algorithm and the algorithm is designed only to elevate that which is popular. They couldn't care less what's popular as long as it's popular. So you imagine when 1.9 billion Muslims around the world are retweeting hashtag Palestine, that source to become the most popular hashtag, mm. which means that the number one video being shown on the homepage is, is Palestine, second Palestine, third Palestine. When Elon Musk took over Twitter, mm. I was one of those who sat with the coffee in his hand Oh, Elon Musk took over Twitter. It's alamat It's the ends of the day of judgment and Elon Musk. But Elon Musk did something that Jack Dorsey didn't do. And this is why I say, Alhamdulillah, he took over Twitter. And I will say, Elon Musk, I'm happy you took over Twitter. And <laughs> I, no, I call it X. I will show you the respect and say X. Do you want a cyber truck? And, the, and, 
For, and I'll tell you why. Because he introduced something where, you know, if you go on X, you have this homepage and it has tweets of people that you don't follow. Mm. And that's the first thing you see. And that homepage is compiled by popular tweets. So suddenly you had Samantha and Dave and Richard opening up X. And instead of seeing the latest episode of Love Island, they were seeing the video of what's happening in Palestine. Mm. And they were looking at each other and saying, oh my goodness, how these babies are being, where is this? Hashtag Palestine. But they told us the Israelis were fighting barbarians. This is Israel killing the Palestinians. Mm. Barbara, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Steve, are you seeing what I'm seeing? I've got to send this to, to, to Richard or Michael. And they send it and they start sharing because they're horrified at what they're seeing. So then they start opening up their books. What is this Israel-Palestine? Wait a minute. So Palestine used to look like this and now it looks like this for no other reason than it is oh these israelis might they keep taking more land might and that's and and that results in a shift in public opinion mm. and that's what made blinken when he went to tel aviv he was only supposed to go to tel aviv and go back to washington but when he was in tel aviv he said no wait we have to go visit riyadh and we have to go visit some of these other capitals why because washington post reports that when he sat with Netanyahu, they had a very deep conversation, not about bin Salman or Erdogan or bin Zayed or the other leaders, they had a deep conversation about you. They said that the social media thing, Abdurrahman Murphy is sitting and talking in roots and people are sharing the video about hashtag Palestine in front of a crowd of people and that's amplifying it on the algorithm because people are watching it, including Sammy from London. They are watching it and the algorithm is recognizing that as popular, amplifying it and as a result, we're falling in the in the US, I need to go to bin Salman to ask for a fatwa from Abdurrahman al-Sudais where he can tell these people at Roots that it's fitna to talk about Gaza. Mm. Don't talk about affairs that you don't know, Ya Sheikh mm -hmm. Abdurrahman Murphy. Make dua for Gaza and stick to that instead. And the reason, the, the point is that as a result of that social media act, the decentralization of information that was not available in 2001, that decentralization of information meant that you now control the narrative, not the mainstream media. And here is where I wrap up on this particular point. And I, I I'm notorious for that sentence, but in any case, <laughs> the, the point is this, I have never seen, and I asked the elders as well, I have never seen mainstream TV presenters apologize for their biased coverage with regards to Palestine and Israel. Over the past four weeks, I saw BBC, CNN, and Sky News apologize. And the reason they apologized, let's be honest, is not because Biden called from the White House or the spokesperson called from the White House and said, you guys are so unfair to the Palestinians, please be fair in your coverage. It's not because Netanyahu called and said, guys, you need to be fair and say that I'm ethnically cleansing Gaza. It's not because Netanyahu said that, it's because they received so much backlash on social media from the decentralized platforms, from you who kept doing hashtag and at this person, at this person. They said that there's no point, let me just apologize for it. And that's what I mean by you were able to change the narratives because you have tools that are available to you that were not available to you beforehand because capitalism focuses on greed and on popularity. And as a result, it's essentially, you know, coming back at them instead, it's reversed on them. They didn't intend for it to happen, but thankfully Elon Musk, because he's stubborn, refuses to bow down to the algorithm. He went to Tel Aviv. On the day he went to Tel Aviv, all my feeds suddenly went pro-Israel. He went back to Washington and he went back to being pro-Palestine. So the point here being is as a result of that algorithm, the decentralized inf information, that's made the difference. But also the Ummah recognizing that and using that to its advantage is also what made the difference. Mm. The Ummah today as a result is braver because it acknowledges the tools that are at its disposal and they are using those tools in order to embark on that change. And that's why on this particular point, beware of fatigue. The reason the policymakers are buckling over each other is because you're being loud. The moment you stop being loud is the moment Netanyahu decides that I'll go to a lower intensity warfare and I'll continue what I'm doing because everybody is bored of hashtag Palestine, bored of retweeting, bored of TikTok, and now they want to see what the next big thing is. Don't be bored, don't get tired and keep going. But that's the difference between the two. The decentralization of information, walhamdulillah for social media. I'm happy you said bravery because when you look up sabr amongst the scholars, you see that they have different definitions of it. So you have al-raghib, he said it is the ability for your mind to hold your soul together. Okay, so that's one, that's one definition. But al-jahiz, he said that it is a quality that is made up of being uh, um, 
of having of having uh what's the word like being a person that's that's deliberate but also b- courageous and it's interesting because you don't oftentimes associate patience with courage you don't but the reason why patience and courage are inextricable from one another is because it's courageous to trust in Allah it requires courage patience also requires trust in Allah Part of the reason why we're so frustrated is because we don't see the result. We don't see the goal. We're waiting for the goal. We're hoping for a goal. In fact, our religion even tells us what the end of the goal is going to be. We know that Allah has promised victory to the Muslims and the Palestinians. That's one thing that if you're here and you believe in Allah, you don't have to leave this room thinking, I don't know what's going to happen. We know that. We know how things began and we know how they'll end. The only area where we're uncertain is right now in the middle. And the middle requires patience because you can't see what's ultimately going to happen. But subhanAllah, if you look back at the life of the Prophet you had many different types of sahaba, many different types of people. You had those sahaba who converted, those companions who accepted Islam. And they would actually ask the Prophet These were amazing people. Khabbab, radiallahu an. He would say, where is the help of Allah, ya Rasulullah? Right, So many of us have that question. You don't have, I don't want to raise hands because I don't want people to feel a certain way. Many of us have that question. Like, okay, we've been doing you know, qunut nazila in the masjid every night for 90 days. People have been donating. They've been advocating. They've been this, this, this. this. And I, I love what Brother Sammy is saying because he's saying ultimately it's working. Right? The reality is as much as you might not feel it's working, it's working. And sometimes when you're in your micro chambers, it's hard to see the effect of what you're doing if you're constantly plugged in, but to unplug, you actually see these results. But Khabbab asked the Prophet ﷺ, when is the rest? When is the help of Allah going to come? And the Prophet ﷺ gave him a very stern answer. This was during the time in Mecca when the Muslims were being killed, harassed, tortured, 13 years, right? A decade plus of being just absolutely, I mean, if you were Muslim, it was a death sentence. And the Prophet ﷺ, he told him, he said, Khabbab, you are being hasty. You're being hasty. Crazy, right? All this guy is saying is, Ya Rasulullah, when can we get some help from Allah? You told us Allah is going to help us. When is it going to come? And he says, Khabab, you're being hasty. And then he describes situations that people came before you with prophets before you and they were torn apart to pieces. They, were, they would tie them to two animals and make them run in different directions. They would take steel instruments and they would scalp them for believing in Allah. And he told Khabbab, he said, you're being hasty. Don't rush. So this sabr, it requires patience. You have, it requires courage. You have the companions like Khabbab. And many of us probably fall into that scenario where we don't want to admit it, but secretly we're like, I really wish that this would just manifest a, a, a victory. I want to see, I want to see the Palestinians victorious. Ya Allah, right? May Allah Ta'ala give us that in our lifetime. But the beauty is that you had the more illustrious companions, the ones who you know about, the ones who maybe your parents named you after, okay? You had the Asma, Khadija, you had Aisha, Abdullah, you had the, you know, many Abdullahs actually, right? You had Abdullah, you have Khalid, you have all these people, Abu Bakr, Uthman, Umar. What was unique about these people? They were both companions. Khabab, who communicated his concern, about not seeing the result, was a companion. And then you had these other companions, but they were known to be more elect. Do you know why they were more elect? They were more elect because even though they couldn't see the victory, they knew it was coming. They couldn't see it with their eyes. They could see it with what? Their heart. They could see it. And the fact that they could see it with their heart actually struck fear into the enemy. And this actually, wallahi, this actually happened. I don't share stories about myself personally. That's a lie. I do all the time. But I don't share stories where like I'm the center of it. But I remember distinctly when I was in Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv. May Allah Ta'ala make it a Muslim city, inshallah. I mean, can't wait for memory TV to get that one. So Muslim and Jewish city. Okay, whoever's, peace is peace, right? We just want to get rid of the violent Zionists, inshallah, right? So... I was there, and you know what's interesting about when you fly out of Tel Aviv 
in the settler colony of Israel, what's interesting is they treat you worse when you're leaving than when you're coming in. If you're coming in, they actually just check you for a second, wait there for a couple hours, don't use the Wi-Fi because they're going to track everything you do. But they give you this disgusting cheese sandwich, don't eat it, right? It's cursed. You don't eat that stuff. And then they give you your passport back and you leave, right? On the way out, you have to get to the airport like eight to nine hours before your flight. And not because you have like your mom and dad trained you well. This is because there's a legitimate chance that they will inspect every orifice of your belongings and they will look at every single thing. It is the most humiliating, degrading, debasing experience that I've ever been through. And they did this on our first year there. We took 50 people and we went and I'm not sure if you've been through Ben-Gurion before. You probably never will after this whole thing. So, uh, yeah, too many clips of you. Uh, no, inshallah. But on the way out, they treat you horribly. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this like 19-year-old IDF soldier. And I look at him. I said, why, why are you doing this? I said, this doesn't make sense. Like, I'm from America. We have the TSA. Like, I know what incompetence looks like. <laughs> this is not incompetence. This is strategic. This is by design. Like, you're behaving like this, but you're not jahil. Like, you're just evil, right? Alon. And then he goes, he looks at me and he gives me this smirk. And I look at him and I go, you're doing, I said, wouldn't it have made more sense for you to do this on the way in? I'm leaving your country. Why are you making it difficult for me to leave? And he just kind of gives me that smirk. And I said, oh, I said, you want, because at this point I've lost all concern or care. I'm a reckless person when I'm upset. And so, yeah, I'm half Egyptian, half Irish, all hot blood, all angry. So no central emotion. Thanks, mom and dad. And so I look at him and I said, you want me to have a bad experience on the way out so that when I get home, I tell all my Muslim friends and family, oh, it was so bad. I would never go. They treat you so bad. It's such a hassle because the last experience, right? Right in the Quran, khitamuhu misk, like we, we want the closing to be sweet, but they're like khitamuhu, like, you know, other thing, right? And then he laughs, which means what? Like I struck a nerve. Like he's like, yeah, yeah, basically, right? And I, saw, I said to him, I said, wallahi. And then I smiled. My smirk is a lot better than his. <laughs> and I said, I said, wallahi. And they know enough Arabic to know what I'm about to say. And I swear to God, when I did this, I even did the, the Masri. I said, wallahi, wallahi. And you know, for those of you who know, like, yeah. I said, wallahi, we're going to come back and we're doubling the numbers. I said, this year we brought 50. We're bringing 100. And then I said, then the next year we're going to bring 200. And I, when I tell you that this man was paler than me in that moment, I'm not exaggerating. The fear that he felt just because I spoke about the future of victory. He couldn't handle it. You know, if somebody came to me and was like, oh, I'm going to take over. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever, right? I just stomp on him. When, he, when I said that to him, I remember this. It was 2017. I remember this. He looked so afraid. And I said, this is a person, subhanAllah, that is trying to repel what they know because they get irritated when they see people speak with conviction. And that's why it's the same. Look at what you're seeing from Gaza. You're seeing these people that are saying, Allah will give us victory. As they're sitting in rubble, Allah will give us victory. That's courage. That's sabr. And if they can have courage, can't we? If they can have courageous sabr, then what, what excuse do we have? You know, and, and, and I want to open up another question to you in just a second, but I know now that I have to give you a question that I have to back off for a little bit. No, no, go ahead. So I, I, I came to listen to you. I came to no, 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 no. But I want everyone to understand. And then, by the way, the next year we brought 100. This year when we had to cancel because of the, the, the unfortunate situation, we had over 230 people reserved. We booked out five hotels in, 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 the, in the Palestinian part of Jerusalem. It was one of the biggest groups. And Dada Salam and Sheikh Yasser Qadi and Miftah, everyone was flooding flooding with Muslims, right? I, I'm not using that word. I just realized the Aqsa flood. They were flooding Al-Aqsa. Wallahi, I was going to say that without realizing it. 
They were flooding it with Muslims, and this is exactly the prophecy that we mentioned to this person, 2017, that scared the daylights out of him. And the reason why he reacted the way that he did was because he knew that he was speaking to a person that believed in the promise of Allah. Not because of me, but because of Allah. Allah has never lied to us before. He never goes back on his promise. Why would he do it now? And so we believe that Allah Ta'ala will give us that victory. We have no doubt about that. The only thing that is left up to question is whether or not we're going to be patient enough to be part of the victory. Or if we're going to regret turning our back on it because of fatigue, because of fear, because of lack of interest, because of love of dunya, because we just love Zara so much. I saw a TikTok. It broke my heart, man. It broke my heart. I saw a person that was, you know, in front of, in front of Zara and she, and she was like, where are we supposed to shop now? I said, this is not the tone that we use. This is not the tone that we use. I'm, not, I'm also not saying go break things and spray paint stuff. I'm also not saying don't do that. But I'm not saying do it. I'm like a lawyer. I can't say do it. I can't say don't do it. I'm just here, right? But we don't say, oh my God, this is making my life so inconvenient. Haram. This is not right. We need to have the courage and the patience to be able to live our lives and to make changes. Everybody has to make changes. My son loved fries from McDonald's. And now my son is like Musa, the BDS monitor Murphy. <laughs> Everywhere we go, you know, we used to get milkshakes from In-N-Out. In-N-Out is this famous California chain. They make milkshakes. My son's in the soccer league. It was a thing. We get soccer and go get milkshakes. And subhanAllah, without me even knowing, I didn't know this. He looked up on Google. He said, okay, Google. Google loaded up. He goes, which, which uh, restaurants support Israel? He's six, going to be seven. And they loaded up. McDonald's, this and that. Then in and out He goes, Baba. I go, yeah. He goes, we can't go to in and out I said, why? I'm, I'm, I'm like, whatever. I don't care, but why? He goes, they support Israel. Now, every time we drive by, he just goes like this. He goes like this. And then my daughter's like, ew. She's just like, they're so, and you, if you see my kids, they're passionate. Why am I telling you this? It's funny, it's humorous, it's lighthearted, but let me tell you this. The ummah that can raise a generation that believes in the cause like this, that can give up their dunya like this, the ummah that has a generation that are six and four, that can look and ask Google, which places should I avoid that I love because I love my brothers and sisters more? And I'm going to give that stuff up. I'm telling you, the French fry addiction was real. I've never seen my son so committed to avoiding a place because of a certain reason than this reason. And I know it's a small story for a small person in a, in a very, very insignificant part of the entire spectrum. But I'm telling you that this is a major shift and the sabr that we exhibit is the sabr that they will learn and is the sabr that they will carry and is the sabr that will give us victory, Ya Rab. I wanted to ask you, Sami, you know, before we wrap up, because we're kind of heading towards the end, and I want to take some questions from the audience as well, inshallah. When it comes to being courageous and having this patience and being able to deal with adversity, many people are scared because the reality is that sharing, you mentioned, is one of the most powerful things that we can do. Continuing to share is something that we can engage in, and it's making a difference. But the reality is that as, as well-funded and as powerful as these people are, they're also equally evil. And there are movements to, you know, we see now with the Ivy Leagues, we see with different universities, we see with even different jobs, that if a Muslim person shares their views passionately and with care, that they are running the risk of not being employable, not being able to maybe even finish their education at the university they got into, or losing the job that they have. How can you advise us as Muslims to be effective in our advocacy while still being courageous and not worrying and trusting more in Allah? And what stories can you share with us about this particular realm of being supportive and being able to get past the concern of the dunya. I think that one of the reasons why a phenomenon in the ummah that I find very strange is 
the separation between the politics of the Quran and the spirituality of the Quran. Many read the Quran as a spiritual book, but forget also that it's supposed to be a manual of life. Many people read the Quran as something that governs your perhaps your personal interactions, say mm. salam alaikum to each other, but not as a guidance for how to conduct yourself in the grand affairs of life in your interaction with the grand issues. The reason why I say that is because there is a wonderful story that directly addresses exactly the question that you've posed. And it is a surah very dear to my heart, and it's Surah Taha, mm. where Musa salam, speaks to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly. And Allah tells him, Go to Pharaoh, he has transgressed. Now, as a teenager, you can be a bit more brazen in the conclusions that you arrive at in the Quran. So when Allah tells Musa salam, to go to Pharaoh, I thought that if Allah tells you to do something, you have to immediately go and do it, and you go straight. There's no negotiation, no discussion. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tries to reassure Musa first by showing him two grand signs. First, he shows him, you know, throw your stick, and the stick becomes a serpent. And then he shows him the uh, A light comes from your hand when you show your hand. Allah doesn't say these are small signs. He said, I've shown you two major signs. Now you picture yourself in that situation. You've talked to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly, and he showed you two huge signs. What would you like to think your reaction would be? I'm going straight to Fir'aun. What does Musa salam, say? Allah, I'm not sure I'm the right person for this job. I have a stutter. <laughs> and you know, as a teenager, you're reading that story and you think, Allah, Musa, what are you saying? Mm. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala lets it go. Musa says, So you think, okay, Allah said the stutter is no problem, go. Musa salam, says, Allah, I don't want to go yet. Though I've spoken to you and seen two big signs, please send with me Harun from my family. In another ayah it says, He's more eloquent than I am. Hmm. We give you Harun, and it's not the first time we've shown favor on you, Musa. When you were a child, we are the ones who rescued you and showed your mother to put you in the river, and you ended up with Pharaoh, and, and you end up. Now you would assume at this point that Musa and Harun they're going to go now to Pharaoh because they've spoken to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They've seen two big signs. Allah has told Musa his stutter is not a problem. And Allah has put Harun. Instead Harun and Musa say, Allah, we are both scared that if we go to Pharaoh, Pharaoh will do something horrible to us. At this point, as a teenager, you say, punishment is coming. <laughs> Instead, I find that my Lord, reading Surah Ta, I realized I didn't know him as well as I mm. should have known him. My Lord, Allah, the Most High, who I realized when I recite Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim in Surah Al-Fatiha, I realized I never understood what Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim is. I would just recite it thinking it's really quite good. And sometimes you recite it with nice tajweed and you think you're doing a good job that you've done service to the ayah, whereas you realize you've never really understood Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. Don't be scared, Allah replies. I'm with you, I see and I hear. And he reminds them. Go to Pharaoh and say this to him. He even advised them. Speak to Pharaoh gently. Maybe he might remind, some people say that the gently was also Allah telling them, don't provoke Pharaoh into taking action against you. Speak to him gently when you're speaking to him, advising him how to talk to Pharaoh. So you read this and you think first and foremost, a prophet felt nervous. A prophet felt fear. A prophet felt hesitation despite receiving the command from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when I'm scared or hesitant to talk about Palestine, that doesn't mean lack of iman because mm. Musa alayhi salam also felt fear and Allah did not rebuke him nor punish him. In the ayat in Surah Taha, at no point does Allah say to Musa alayhi salam, how dare you feel fear? At no point does Allah rebuke Musa salam, for having these feelings. So when you feel that nervousness or hesitation, do not believe for a second that's a sign of a lack of iman. When Musa speaks to Pharaoh, Pharaoh of course arranges the competition between them. Between the magicians. He thinks, I, I think you're a magician. When Musa salam, 
stands in front of the magicians again when he's on that university campus and he is now talking about Palestine and you imagine the scene that he's in when he's facing the magicians where he has a crowd that is taunting him magicians who are goading him Pharaoh who is threatening him imagine the scene if you were there when you look around you and everybody is you know I always give the example you know you try to think of an example of modern day I played soccer growing <laughs> up and you know there is a famous chant when you want to insult your opponents who are ya? who are ya? you know like who are you guys and then I always imagined that the crowd in Musa was sort of like that to Musa alayhi salam. Who are you? You're going to be humiliated. You're getting killed today. You're this, you're that. They were waiting for it. Musa, standing on that campus, talking out in social media, in your workplace, talking about Palestine, that fear that you have, Musa felt that fear again, despite talking to Allah, seeing two major signs, being having Harun sent to him, and going and being rescued as a baby, and being promised by Allah victory, being promised by Allah victory, and still, Musa. I read those ayat and I said, Alhamdulillah, the hesitation I feel when I tweet about hashtag Palestine is not a bid'ah. And not only that, when Allah, when you look at the way the ayat are structured in the Quran, for there is hikmah in the structure ayat, Musa, Allah replies immediately, Allah says, don't be scared. I've made you superior. And not only that, Allah has to remind him of the signs. Allah has to remind Musa, suggesting Musa has frozen in that, in that period. So Allah is telling, reminding him and saying him, remember the sign I showed you, do it. And the reason why they put the ayah in this regard is Allah telling him, throw it and leave the outcome to me. Do it, I'll handle the rest. Mm -hmm. Trust me, Musa, just throw your stick and I promise it will result in your victory. And when you look at the ayah, straight afterwards, it was suddenly he found. So the, the suggestion is that almost if Musa went, and when he turned around to see, he found them all prostrated. And look how Allah strikes the comparison. When the sorcerers see the sign of Allah, and they only saw one sign, which is that their, their magic was defeated, they prostrate, and when Pharaoh threatens to cut their hands and feet and to crucify them, they turn around to Pharaoh after seeing only one sign and needing no reassurances. Mm. We will never prefer you over what we've seen from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Musa needed six reassurances, they needed one. And the reason why Allah shows us this is to say that sabr also applies in how you deal with this fear that is in your heart. In that that's not the bid'ah. Allah will not punish you or hold you to account for the fear in your heart, but rather whether you allow that fear to prevent you from taking action. Whether you allow that fear to overcome you so that you end up doing nothing whatsoever. Some people believe that this means that you should just go headlong, Palestine, and go straight through the door in your workplace. <laughs> Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Quran, mm -hmm. and debate with them with that which is best. Allah didn't use tayyibah in this ayah, didn't say in the good way. He said, ahsan, be strategic, use your context. Understand your abilities, understand your environment, remember how to give the da'wah. Remember, you mentioned earlier the first 13 years of the life of the Prophet Muhammad In those first 13 years, Allah does not give any power to Muhammad over Quraysh. I have a funny story, by the way, about this if I can. Go ahead. Using the right strategy. There's a guy that I know at my gym. He's the kind of guy, and I apologize if you're also this kind of guy, but I just have to say it. He's the kind of guy that says, don't drink tap water. You don't know what the government's putting in it. So he goes, you don't know. There's chemicals. They're changing us. Frogs have three arms, yada, yada, okay? So I said, you're right. You're right, man. And he goes, yeah, because everyone always dismisses him. They're like, you know what? This guy's crazy. But he's a trainer there, so they go to him. He's really good. I said, you know what, man? I can't say his name just in case he converts and watches this. It'd be awkward. He goes, you're right. I go, you're right. And he was like, his eyes lit up. And I go, you know what else the government puts on us that it's crazy that we shouldn't believe? And he goes, why well, go the news? He goes, you're right. <laughs> and I said, you know this whole Israel thing? He goes, yeah. I go, have you ever thought about it, man? Just like the water? <laughs> look, man, if I got white privilege, I gotta use it. So I'm like, look. <laughs> so I said, I said, I said, have you thought about it? 
And he goes, what? And I said, it's kind of crazy, right? Like these people are always right. No matter what, they're killing everybody. They're using all of our money. They're using all billions of dollars. I said, have, have you thought about how weird that is? And he's like, and we both put on our tinfoil hats and we were just looking at each other <laughs> and it worked, but you're right. Because if I go to him and I say from the river to the sea, he's going to be like, I heard about you people. But then I say, you know what? Just like the water's bad. You know what else is bad? Israel's bad. And he's like, you're right. And he actually, subhanAllah, now he looks at me and I wear a free Palestine shirt to the gym. And he's like, nice shirt with my bottle, with my uh, uh, purified water. And I look at him like nice water, right? So to your point, Sheikhna, is that it is so imperative that you don't ruin your message by your delivery. And I, I know I interrupted you. No, 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 no. And but, I know but, that but, I cut but you you're off. Perfect, right. But even with Jadin Bilati Ahsan, it's important to stress that there is a difference between going to somebody, inviting them to Islam, by telling them, enter Islam or you're going to burn in hellfire, bro. Mm. And between saying to them, come to Islam because Allah created the seven heavens and the earth and this is how we treat our neighbors and this is how we... When you look at the khutbah al-wada'a, the final message of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu he could have said anything. He could have said, guys, raise your swords and go to jihad every single day and do not tolerate any kafir. He didn't say that. The Prophet chose in his final message to convey exactly the essence of the Islam, of the message that he wanted to convey, in which he said, set aside your tendencies for revenge. Your blood, honor, and property are sacred to each other. Remember to uphold the rights of your neighbor. Remember to be just between you. It's these messages that make people turn to Islam. When people are entering Islam in droves, despite your perception that the Ummah is weak, they're not entering because they see huge Muslim armies. They're entering because they see the beauty of what Islam inspires in mankind, what it inspires in terms of your character and the like. And that's what it means. And remember this as well. Some, some of you may believe sometimes that in that fear, that when you see that antagonism, that perhaps you're concerned about giving da'wah. But when people mention the ayah, that the ones who called for, to Allah and believe and do good deeds and say, I am from the Muslimin, that this is the best of speech. People forget the following ayah, which tells you who that da'wah is directed to. Allah says, وَلَا تَسْتَوِي الْحَسَنَةُ وَلَا السَّيِّئَةُ إِدْفَعْ بِالَّتِهِ أَحْسَنُ فَإِذَا الَّذِي بَيْنَكَ وَبَيْنَهُ عَدَاوَةٌ كَأَنَّهُ وَلِيٌ حَمِيمٌ The good deed and the bad deed are not equal. Because he swore at you, you don't swear at him. Because he was vile to you, you don't be vile to him. Because he was horrible to you, you don't be horrible to him. For the good deed and the bad deed are not equal. And Allah says, conduct yourself in that which is best. For it may be the one with whom you have an enmity today, the one who is your enemy today, the one shouting you down today, the one threatening to kick you off, off the campus today, the one threatening to fire you today may tomorrow become your warmest ally. And this is where we link it back to Sabr. The final part of the ayah is, وَمَا يُلَقَاهَا إِلَّا الَّذِينَ sabaru. The ones who achieve this, where the enemy becomes the warmest ally, are the ones who are patient and the ones do حَظٍ azim. They are the ones who are truly blessed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We were patient over the past two months. So how many people have you seen who are pro-Israel who become pro-Palestine today? Mm -hmm. We were patient in our da'wah. We were shouting and roaring despite they were shouting us down. And then I saw a rapper come out and say, mate, I don't know much about Palestine, Israel, but I know a genocide when I see one. How many of these high-profile figures are now coming out and our Jewish cousins going and doing a Congress sit-in? Imagine if someone like me did the Congress sit-in, what the reaction would be. But look at the Jewish cousins, how they went to do the Congress sit-in because they saw the messages and the da'wah that you were making and they responded to it and they became like your warmest ally. And that's the reason why I want to insist on this particular point with regards to patience. Patience doesn't mean that you sit at home and do nothing. Patience means trust the process. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has monopolized the outcome. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not ask anybody about the outcome, nor about how it should be achieved, nor when it should come. Allah did not even consult his prophets about what the outcome should be. So much so that in Surah Nuh, Nuh does his da'wah for 900 years and at one point turns to Allah and complains while he's still giving the da'wah. He says, Rabbi, inni da'utu qawmi layla wa nahara wa lam yazidhum du'ai illa firara wa anni kullama da'utuhum li takhfira lahum ja'alu asabihum fi adhanihim wa staqshaw thiyabahum wa asarru wa staqbaru istikbara. Allahumma in these 900 years, I have called on my people day and night. And every time I call on them, they run away from me. And when I go to chase them, when I to give them the da'wah, they put their fingers in their ears 
and they put their clothes on top of their faces and they treat me with arrogance. Nuh doesn't stop even though he doesn't see the outcome because his sabr, he understands it's the essence and sabr is not about waiting to achieve the outcome. Sabr is in the acknowledgement that the outcome belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah will choose the outcome. And that will lead you to a most beautiful conclusion which is that when you end up reading the ayah afterwards where Allah says, وَمَنْ أَرَادَ الْآخِرَةَ وَسَعَ لَهَا سَعْيَا وَهُوَ مُؤْمِنٌ فَأُولَٰئِكَ كَانَ سَعْيَهُمْ مَشْكُورًا And those who strive for the sake of Allah and they believe in Allah, the وَهُوَ مُؤْمِنٌ part is that you strive in the belief that you trust that Allah is the best is the best Lord to decide the outcome. That's what the mu'minun part, that you're not striving for the sake of striving. You're striving and saying, Allah, I don't know what the outcome is, but I know I should be moving, so I'm moving. And Allah, give barakah in my movement. I hope it's the right way. And if it's not, please guide me to the right way. That's the wahua mu'minun. Allah says, فَأُولَٰئِكَ كَانَ سَعْيُهُمْ مَشْكُورًا For those, it's their striving that's rewarded, not the result. Lut gives da'wah to his people. The reason Prophet, Prophet says, Shayibatni Huda, Hud has given me white hairs, is because Surah Hud is all about prophets who by your standards never achieve the outcome. They are about Hud who goes to his people, Allah destroys his people. Salih goes to his people, Allah destroys his people. Shu'ib goes to Median, Allah destroys Median. Lut goes to his people, Allah destroys his people. Nuh goes to his people, Allah destroyed his people. I ask you, does anyone here think that those prophets failed in their mission? No. Absolutely not, because they were but messengers. The prophets used to say, if I knew the ghaib, no harm would befall me. I am but a messenger to you, for the outcome belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and when you appreciate this you start realizing that Allah will reward you as an ummah so long as you keep striving and you begin to appreciate that I may not see the outcome in my lifetime but that doesn't mean that I should stop moving that I should keep mobilizing because what Allah will appreciate me is for the mobilizing not in achieving the outcome and then you realize that the greatest honor in this life is not to be the guy or the or the, or the sister who stands on the podium in front of a Quds and say I did it as if you want to share in the glory of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for remember man kana yuridu al-'izzata falillahi al-'izzatu jami'a those who seek glory let them know all glory belongs to Allah let everybody know here none of you does a favor for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala it's you who need Allah it's not Allah who needs you Yunus alayhi salam went to his people and was so frustrated and gave up so he left his people, he was swallowed by a whale. When he came out, he found his people guided. It was Allah saying, yeah, Yunus, don't get it twisted. I don't need you. If I wanted to, I could make the whole world believe in me. The honor was not in that you would achieve the outcome. The honor was in I chose you to be a vehicle to potentially achieve that outcome. And when you come to the conclusion that the beauty of Islam is in being the vehicle, that it's not you that makes Islam great, it's Islam that makes you great. It's not you that makes Allah great it's Allah who makes you great when you come to that conclusion there's only one way or there's only one beautiful moment that you long for there will only be one outcome that you long for and that outcome is something that Allah has put in one of the shorter surahs that you've all read a thousand times but perhaps you haven't yet appreciated it's the area where when you're lying on your deathbed when you still haven't seen the outcome that you wanted but you kept going and you kept striving and you showed the sub and you showed the perseverance you went through the tears you went through the heartbreak you went through the despair and you said I'm not going to be an ummah that sits down I'm going to be an ummah that keeps moving when you get to your deathbed and you still haven't seen the outcome you won't be depressed because as your soul leaves your body despite never having seen the outcome what you hear from the angels is oh beautiful beautiful soul oh beautiful soul that kept striving angels he never or she never saw the outcome but look Look how they kept going because they believed in Allah. Look how they kept mobilizing when people told them it was impossible. Look how they kept moving when the odds were against them. Look how they trusted that Allah had the outcome so they always made themselves vehicles for change. Look how even when the whole world stood against them, they kept going because they believed in Allah. Oh sweet smelling soul, come let me show you the best outcome. Fadkhuli fi ibadi wadkhuli jannati. Enter my heaven, oh beautiful soul that strived. Enter the beautiful soul. Every prophet was asked before they died, do you want to stay in this dunya and see the outcome or do you want to come back to Allah to go to Jannah? And every single prophet said, the outcome belongs to Allah, I want to go to Jannah. 
the Prophet Muhammad never saw Islam in Dallas al-Sharif. The Prophet Muhammad never saw Islam in LA, in the ends of the world, that I believe if the earth was flat, that would be where you fall off. But the Prophet did not need to see it because his magnificence was not in the material achievements he achieved. The magnificence was in the spirit that he left behind in this ummah. That when the Prophet said, convey from me, even if it's just a verse, People always read it and say, okay, I'll read the verse. That's not the point of the hadith. The point of the hadith is in the walaw, even if it's just a verse. Where the Prophet Muhammad was saying, don't be an ummah that does nothing, my ummah. Don't be an ummah that sits at home and does nothing. If you have no other power to do anything, no power to bring a change, don't be an ummah that does nothing. Even if it means going to Roots to listen to Sheikh Abdurrahman Murphy, go inshallah. But say something, do something, for this is an ummah that never sits at home. Some people say that when I grow older, I want to die in Medina. What if I was to tell you that only minority of Sahaba are buried in Medina? What did they conclude that meant that they died outside of Medina? What is the, where have you twisted the interpretation of their Islam and your Islam? Because they believed that to get to Jannah, they had to be a soul that strived, not a soul that relaxed. They had to be a soul that moved, not a soul that lived in comfort. They had to be a soul that dedicated themselves for the sake of Allah, not a soul that assumed that the right of Islam is something that they would always be blessed with. For ulul al-bab in Surah Ali Imran, ulul al-bab are those who know Allah, those who are close to Allah, those who ponder Allah day and night, those who ponder Allah standing, sitting and lying down. Ulul al-bab say in Surah Al-Iman, Rabbana la tuzik qulubana ba'da idh hadaytana wa hablana min ladunka rahma. Allah, this is Ulul al-bab, not the weak Muslims like myself. They were talking about Ulul al-bab, those who know Allah. They say, Allah, please don't guide us out of this deen after you have guided us to it and bestow upon us your mercy, suggesting that they knew that Islam was not a right. It was a blessing and a mercy from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It was a gift from Allah that can be taken away because the Prophet Muhammad said, Ya muqallib al-qulub, thabbit qalbi ala deenik. Oh, you who flips the hearts, keep my heart on your deen. A prophet said that. How many times do you say that in the day? Or do you just assume you will die Muslim? And when somebody gives you a gift, what do you do when someone shows you a gift? You show gratitude. You show gratitude. And how do you show gratitude? By allowing Islam to be what leads you towards an action. By letting Islam guide you to an action. And that's the point that I want to make here. Ya ibadallah. And I promise this is where I finish. <laughs> ya ibadallah. Do not pursue the sake of the Palestinian cause on the basis that you want to see the outcome in your lifetime. Pursue it on the basis that you want the greatest honor that is possible for any servant, which is to be the vehicle that Allah uses to bring about change, whether it's in this time or the life afterwards. You look at this structure that you have here. This was not built by me. This was built by people in this generation. And the masajid that led to the Muslims coming here, led to people providing the funding for this. This is built on the efforts of those who came before us. If they hadn't mobilized, we would have to do the work here. We, generations inherit after each other. We all build on the works of each other. We may be destined just to lay the foundations for those who will liberate Palestine afterwards. But when your soul leaves your body, you will not worry about this dunya, you will only worry about your own actions. Whether you chose to strive, whether you chose to mobilize. And for those who say, wallah, I feel I have no power. There is a, a verse in Surah Al-Kahf that the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu encouraged you to read every single week, which is, If you were to count the blessings of Allah, you'd never finish counting them. Allah did not qualify that ayah that you would, if, you, if you were to count your blessings when times are good, you would never finish counting them. If you were to count your blessings when you're rich, you would never finish. Allah left it when, at, in all times. And the reason why is so that when you start counting them, you realize you never finish counting them. I can breathe, I can see, I can smell. I can speak, I have social media, I get to, get to sit next to Sheikh Abdurrahman Murphy after watching him on videos for many times. I get to sit, I, I get to go to Dallas, I got to see the lovely weather in LA. I have my mother alive, my father alive, I have my siblings, my brother is in Tokyo, and alhamdulillah, I get to visit him over there. Inshallah, he marries a Japanese woman. And then, and, and <laughs> <laughs> 
But you, you start counting all the blessings one by one. Alhamdulillah, my brain works. Alhamdulillah, I can walk. Alhamdulillah. You start counting, counting. You think, you know what? I'm not actually in a bad situation as I think I am. And the reason Allah gives you that area is so that you always feel you are capable. You always feel you can move. And that's the point that I want to say. When you open the Quran and you read it, read it. Don't start a surah and be desperate to finish it. Read it. Don't be desperate to finish the ayah and try to beautify it solely with tajweed. Read it. Understand it. Get its meaning and ask Allah to give you the wisdom to understand those ayat because then you'll come to the conclusion that the ummah technically has never been weak. The ummah has never been weak. The tragedy of this ummah is not that it's weak but that it believes itself to be weak because wallahi if it was weak blinking and Netanyahu would not have asked TikTok to keep you quiet. The social media directors would not have been summoned by Benny Gantz to keep you quiet. The shadow banning of the different accounts would not have happened. If you were weak, if your voice meant nothing, there would the people would not be kicked out of you universities we would not be shut out of mainstream media we would not have this being sacked from our jobs from talking about Palestine you only do those things if there is a power that you are scared of and therefore you are desperate to repress so I ask you yeah woman I leave you with this question what is the power that they fear that exists in you that you are unable to see in yourself what is the power that they are worried that you will manifest that you are unable to see yourselves capable of manifesting what is the power they see in you that you cannot see in yourself why is it they see you as strong and you see yourselves as weak why do they see a necessity to repress you where you believe that there is no need to repress you because you happen to be weak what is this twisted mentality where you forgot that Allah is the one who all power belongs to and he gives power to whom he wills when did you forget that when did it become that the non-Muslim knows that the power become, belongs to Allah, which is why he fears the Ummah, but the Muslims who believe in Allah forgot that Allah is Qawiyudul Mateen. And that's what I want to leave you with. Remember this. Ya Ibad Allah, Allah made the Muslims great when Islam was the impetus for action and mobilization and humiliated the Ummah when Islam became about habits and rituals with no substance or meaning that led us to idolence and indolence, that led us simply to stay within our circles and never mobilize going forward to go and engage with our ummah. What Gaza has taught us is when we mobilize as an ummah, when we make noise, when we roar, when we move together, we can make Blinken buckle, we can make Biden panic, we can make Israel buckle, we can make social media buckle, we can make Kamala Harris come out with a video and say that we're launching a counter Islamophobia campaign because we're desperate for the Muslim votes because if they don't vote for us, we're going to lose the election. You are the ones who made the Democrats send an email saying Trump wants to do the Muslim ban, we won't do the Muslim ban. They didn't do it because they care about you they did it because there is a power they are worried that you would manifest and they are trying to make sure you don't manifest that power you've already displayed this power Gaza has reminded you that you have that power the question I leave you with is do will you believe finally that you have power and that it's worth mobilizing or will you go back to humiliation Gaza is the one that did the favor for us Gaza is the one that woke us up those Palestinians that you pity pity yourselves they are the ones who rescued us they are the ones who liberated us they are the ones who woke us up from the slumber and may we all Always be awake now and never go back to sleep again. Barakallahu <laughs> You know the ayah that you quoted about The part, subhanAllah, that always gets me is that when the person is being called by the angel, they will be in a place of just absolute contentment with Allah and Allah will be content with them. And so we, we, we make dua now that we ask Allah to be content with us. Amen. And we ask Allah to take us back being content with Him. Amen. We ask Allah Ta'ala that all of our actions and all of our deeds and our words are for His sake alone. Amen. Oh Allah, we ask You to give us contentment knowing that You're the one in control. Amen. Oh Allah, we ask You to allow us to submit to Your will and to trust You. Amen. Oh Allah, we ask You to grant us the courage of patience. Oh Allah, we ask you to we ask you, O oh Allah, to grant us the ability to keep moving forward. Oh Allah, we ask you to allow us to be a, a, a an ummah and a generation that supports one another and that stands up for one another and that sacrifices for one another and that gives each other a cause to believe in victory, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we ask you to allow us to be a reason for relief for the Ummah of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Oh Allah, we ask you to allow us to be a reason of comfort, Ya Allah, for the Ummah of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Oh Allah, we ask you to allow us to be a reason for the victory of the Ummah of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And oh Allah, we ask you for, finally, Ya Allah, that we are a people, that the true victory that we experience is the victory of the Akhirah, Ya Allah. 
and that, O oh Allah, we ask you to forgive all of those who have passed away in this cause, Ya Allah. We ask you to give shifa and to give healing to those that have been affected by this cause, Ya Allah. We ask you to accept as martyrs all those who have been killed in this cause, Ya Allah. And O oh Allah, we ask you, Ya Allah, by your justice and your wisdom and your power, O oh Allah, to make this cause a means for an everlasting victory, Ya Rabb. Whether we live to see it or not, Ya Rabb, we know that you are the one that decides and you are the one that is in power, Ya Allah. And we ask you, O oh Allah, to make this a means for victory that is everlasting, Ya Rahman Rahimin. Wa salli Allahumma ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam tasliman kathira. Ameen, Ya Rabbil Alameen.